my daughter recently had to go in for a blood draw and was upset. It's scary. It's intimidating. There's pain. It's not a pleasant experience for an eight-year-old kid. But the phlebotomist, the nurse taking her blood, did a masterful job of calming her, of sitting with her, of holding her hand, of touching her gently. No robot is ever going to do that. It's the most human quality. And I think that we should be leaning in and thinking about those things as well, whether it's in empathy or context or knowledge, or tone or those kinds of things that artificial intelligence will never replicate. So I think the wise educators out there and the wise managers and business leaders are thinking through how do we responsibly incorporate the use of these technologies, educate people about the best ways to use them and incorporate them into our workflow. Welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere, where CEOs, leaders, and experts at building teams, companies, organizations, and amazing cultures share how to lead from anywhere in the world. I'm your co-host on the East Coast, Judy Bianco Mathis. And I'm your co-host on the West Coast, Mitch Simon. And we invite you to join us to Team Anywhere. Hello and welcome to another episode of Team Anywhere. I'm your host, Mitch Simon on the West Coast. Today we have a West Coaster as well. And today on the podcast, we have Yoav Schlesinger, Architect of Ethical AI Practice at Salesforce in San Francisco. Yoav collaborates with privacy, legal, engineering, data science, product security, accessibility design, and product marketing and public relations teams to bring life to Salesforce, Salesforce trusted AI commitment. We've heard so many amazing things about AI and so many horror stories about AI. And I wanted to get Yoav's perspective on how to utilize AI to strengthen productivity and engagement in the virtual and hybrid world. So, hello, Yoav. How are you today? Great. Thanks, Pitch. Uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. We actually have blue sky in San Diego. Do you, do you have blue sky up there? It's kind of windy and cold, actually. Yeah, well, you're in San Francisco, right? Mark Twain, the uh, coldest winter I ever had was the summer I spent in San Francisco. So, so you are, as it says there, um, ethical, human, humane. You're the architect of ethical AI practice at Salesforce. Can you tell us about your job and how you came upon this specialty? Sure. So I'll take those in reverse. How I, how I got here. Uh, I spent uh, 15 plus years in the nonprofit space doing... Uh, fundraising, consulting, executive coaching, strategy, et cetera. Uh, was actually a two-time executive director of community-driven nonprofits myself and always kind of had a mission-driven, human-focused orientation in all that work. In 2016, you may recall, we had a U.S. election uh, that uh, I like to think was the end of techno-optimism 1.0. We all kind of ran into the brick wall of social media and its impact on society. And I was looking around and thinking where I could most contribute that mission-driven orientation. And I realized that technology and the development and deployment of responsible technology felt like a good place to be thinking about that. So I pivoted my career and uh, began doing this thing called responsible innovation and responsible technology, first making investments in the space and later moving to Salesforce, where I've been now for about four years. In that role, uh, I work in the Office of Ethical and Humane Use of Technology, which sits in our product organization, actually. It's kind of unique in that regard. 
many companies that have this function tend to situate that in compliance, governance, legal, some other place in the organization. But we actually sit in the product organization where people are building our products in the first place. And so my responsibility is to think about how we do that with guidance, guidelines, and guardrails in place to help our own employees as well as our customers do the right thing and make it harder to do the wrong thing. Northern California, where a lot of the great companies are um, located, do are, are all the other companies have as much commitment to um, what is doing what is right and ethical as Salesforce does? I think it varies, and I think it varies depending on the maturity of the organization and their commitment to thinking about this work broadly defined. Uh, so we've certainly seen teams stood up at some of the big players, obviously Microsoft, Facebook, now Meta, IBM, uh, Google, of course, Salesforce. So there have been some sort of acknowledged leaders in this space, but we've also seen some unfortunate cuts to these teams as companies have struggled to you know, make those kinds of hard choices about which teams they keep and which teams they cut. So I think it varies, uh, but one thing that has always impressed me about Salesforce is that we articulate trust as our number one value. And if trust is our number one value, ethics figures prominently in that conversation. And we can have authentically trust-grounded conversations or values-grounded conversations in the course of decision-making. And it's not lip service, but rather we can have those conversations about, does this generate trust? Does it compromise trust? And how can we ensure that we're building that for our customers and theirs? So as we, as we connect today, what is the biggest thing on your mind when it comes to AI? Oh, gosh. Uh, so the last six months or so have been really interesting in the world of AI. I'm sure many of your listeners will recall the introduction of a thing called ChatGPT back in the late fall, November, December, when there became uh, a groundswell of awareness around the availability, the power of AI, particularly a field called generative AI, which is distinguished from kind of traditional AI, if you will, in that it creates new content. So rather than ingesting uh, old content and making predictions or recommendations based on that, the goal of generative AI is to take all of its data that it has learned from and create content de novo out of nothing um, using some pretty sophisticated deep learning, neural networks, all sorts of terms that we don't need to get into, but basically some statistical evaluation of what words should follow what other words and creating new content. So ChatGPT rolled out about six months ago. It was the fastest consumer application to ever reach 100 million users. And we've seen the rapid adoption, the rapid scaling, the rapid integration of the technology in just about every sector, just about every company, just about every place you could imagine it popping up from creating new PowerPoint presentations to creating images to creating speeches and passing the bar exam or the, uh, I think the past even medical school examinations. 
So what am I concerned about with all of that? Yes, yes. Disruption. I mean, I, I think fundamentally what we're looking at is a moment of disruption in how we work, in where we work, in the ways we work, in the way we engage with technology. And it's the first time I think a singular technology is accompanied by that type of disruption, right? So you think about the industrial revolution is something that people often point to and say, well, you know, over time, people found new jobs, found new work, found new ways to engage, et cetera. But I think they forget all of the technologies that were introduced over the course of the industrial revolution, whether it was the steam engine or the assembly line or, you know, uh, industrial scale looms, whatever those things were, AI is in, in essence a singular technology that's accompanied by that same type of disruption. And I don't know that we have the moral muscle memory or the moral imagination to think through the, those implications and how we will respond as society to that disruption you know as we as we're recording this is the team anywhere show and we're really looking at how you know the forces um of management leadership technology are impacting the remote worker and um you know i've heard that one of the fears of ai um is that bosses or people in general they're not going to know whether you quote unquote did the work Right. Um, my boss says, hey, I need a, that report on my desk by Monday. I, I turn it on Monday. I could be, I could have been on, um, I could have been on the, the beach in, in France for all my boss knew if I turn in an AI generated um, paper or, or report. So in a virtual world, um, are we looking at workers who will be less trusted because of AI? Um, because as you talked about, or we talked about at the beginning, like, like, ethics and trust they're so interlinked um what do you see now or in the future in the trust quotient um being impacted um by ai especially in this in the virtual world it's a great question so first of all let me issue a word of caution if you are an employee anywhere and want to submit company confidential information to chat gpt or any of these other types of systems don't do that uh, they will use whatever you've input in training and retraining that model. So if you have that report due on Monday and it involves strategic plans, company proprietary information, et cetera, be very cautious before you put that into the little chat window um, to develop that report. So that's caution number one. That's a good note. Do you think that most companies know that? I think many companies know that. I'm not sure how many people know that. Okay. All right. Great. Okay. Please, employees, do not do this. Samsung was a notable uh, player in that conversation as they saw it. But, you know, employees open up another browser window and are going between their two browser windows, one for work and one for ChatGPT, and just copying and pasting into ChatGPT a lot of the time. So... I think that the general awareness about security and privacy has not yet reached the level of educational literacy or you know technological literacy that most people need to be able to interact with these systems in responsible ways. Your question though about trust in this world, I think gets to a fundamental question of what is the job of the AI? What should it do and how should we consider its role in the work that we do? And from my perspective, 
the role for AI is best at this point is to augment or empower people to unlock their potential, to increase their efficiency, and to serve as a co-pilot, uh, a helpful assistant to the work that they're doing to solve particular problems, but not to replace human judgment, human work, uh, et cetera. So um, what does that mean? You know, a lot of people encounter the blank page problem. You know, I've got to start that report. Where do I start? Get, get me going. And so an AI system can do a really great job of getting that, you know, basic outline structured for you. But then the human needs to go in and assert their sophisticated knowledge, the tone that they want the appropriate context, all the things that that AI system is never going to know. So I don't think it's a replacement for human knowledge, human judgment, human empathy, all of the kinds of things that are uniquely human. I think it's meant to augment those things by playing a role, but not doing the work for us. There's actually a book called The Most Human Human, uh, it's a competition that was designed to replace the Turing test, which is to, it's an old test to say, can the artificial intelligence uh, mimic a human well enough that a human can't determine it's actually an AI? So there's a competition held every year, right? To try to develop an AI system that can effectively replace a person. This book's premise is there are uniquely human things, right? So what's the competition for determining the most human human? What's the most human quality? And I think that we should be leaning in and thinking about those things as well, whether it's in empathy or context or knowledge, or tone or those kinds of things that artificial intelligence will never replicate. So when I when I think about it, I remember a book, I think it was by Dan Pink, I'm not sure, um, where I was basically talking about that the jobs of the future will be um, where you bring your own creativity and innovativeness and in human in humanity. Do you see that um, now with um, especially um, generated artificial intelligence being so available in the next probably next days or weeks, right? Um, most people will have touched it and used it and said, oh my gosh, this is really, really great. Do you see a, um, as opposed to uh, the dehumanization of humans, more of a humanization because the the boss will just say, hey, you know, the computer could generate that. What I really want is, I guess I'm being hopeful here, self-expression, you know, honesty, uh, ethical ways to look at things, perspective. What is your perspective on that? I think that hits it head on. You know, the work can get done in all sorts of ways. And the human can't. So... I've been thinking a lot lately about the world that my two daughters are likely to grow up in. They're eight and 10 and thinking what kinds of work should they pursue? What kinds of things would I encourage them to explore as they go about their educational journey and then professional journeys? I was thinking recently about nursing in particular, right? Uh, my daughter recently had to go in for a blood draw and was upset. It's scary. It's intimidating. There's pain, right? It's it's not a pleasant experience for an eight-year-old kid. Uh, but the phlebotomist, the nurse taking her blood, did a masterful job of calming her, of, you know, sitting with her, of holding her hand, of, you know, 
touching her genitally, all these sorts of things. And I was thinking, no robot is ever going to do that. Uh, there's nothing we can develop that will have that engagement from person to person and human to human. So I think bosses will be looking for uh, tactile experiences, uh, creative experiences. You can imagine in, in some way an inversion of what is valued in the workplace, right? We've typically valued knowledge work, sit at a computer, pump that, you know, report out. And maybe we're going to invert and revert to something that's more uh, quintessentially human, more tactile, cabinet making or beekeeping. I don't know. Beekeeping. <laughs> yeah. You still have to have bees. That's true. Consider that. Consider that. The the last three years, everybody says, you know, from a technological standpoint, accelerated technology by maybe five, 10, maybe 15 years. As you look at, um, if you would combine, um, you know, what we're seeing in the statistics is, you know, people do not want to go back to work five days a week. Um, they're, you know, they're compromising around two or three days. Some are not compromising. Um, and so we learned how to, we developed a lot of tools that allowed us to be very effective um, while we are remote, as you um, prognosticate um, the near or the or the far future, how is um, how is AI going to maybe support or maybe hurt uh, the experience of the worker who is now um, homebound, homeward bound, or homebound? How do you see that playing out? So I think we know that. Technology broadly defined, so whether it's AI or just technology platforms more generally, has unlocked huge potential for collaboration, for engagement, for synchronous and asynchronous work. Salesforce owns Slack, a conversational platform you may be familiar with. I heard of it. Allows people to, you know, chat with their teams and share files and all sorts of other things. So we're acutely aware of the power and the potential for collaborative tools that do that work. Um, but at the same time, there was particularly through the worst times of the pandemic and continuing, I think an interest from managers and bosses and all sorts of people and all types of work in doing the monitoring of what employees were doing and are doing in their remote environments, et cetera. So, you know, call it bossware, if you will, uh, right? Monitoring keystrokes, monitoring attention, monitoring time at, you know, um, if you're a customer service agent, how many calls you resolve over the course of the day and are you doing it fast enough? All these sorts of questions. Uh, so I'm slightly optimistic about the potential for these tools to unlock collaborative potential from those remote environments, from people who are working two or three days a week from home. I've only been in an office myself maybe half a dozen times in three plus years. I don't find a need to be in that office environment all the time, but certainly for high value opportunities, high engagement opportunities, I do find that value. So there's certainly technologies that enable that. And at the same time, I'm very cautious about other kinds of technologies that have been subtly introduced over time um, in order to manage that remote workforce 
in ways that are potentially detrimental to people's autonomy, detrimental to their trust in their employers and in each other. Hey, we're taking a quick break to remind you to support our podcast by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a review. Your feedback means the world to us and it helps us continue to bring you more engaging and thought-provoking content for leadership and remote work. As you look at um, the, you know, let's say the the next three three years of employees. So just imagining high school, college, um, as of like say the turn of 2023, where now I could actually get a lot of my work done utilizing generative AI. Um, some of the some of the issues we've heard on the radio is you know there are some teachers who say you know you turn in something generated by AI I'm going to flunk you. Some teachers are basically saying you know if you don't use generative AI you're crazy you know because um, it's more effective to 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 use it. I'm just wondering as as you look at the new workers that are going to be coming to your to to Salesforce right in the next three years who have played with um, these generative AI um, solutions. What do you think will be the um, some of the opportunities and challenges of of leading this cohort? Look, I don't think it's ever been effective for educators or folks in the workforce or anywhere else to say you should not use that new technology because, right? Math teachers saying don't use a calculator because it will you know slide rules are better. Don't use a computer because it will harm your penmanship whatever the sort of right thing was at the moment. And over time, we recognize that it's impossible to fight that rising tide. And it's probably better to incorporate those things in the ways we approach education or work as opposed to fighting and railing against. So I think the wise educators out there and the wise managers and business leaders are thinking through how do we responsibly incorporate the use of these technologies, educate people about the best ways to use them, and incorporate them into our workflow, into our pedagogy, et cetera. So if I'm teaching a course on literature, maybe the litmus test for performance in that course is not, did you deliver an essay on Jane Austen, but rather, first, use a generative AI system to generate that paper on Jane Austen and have the assignment be to critique the work of the generative AI, to find where it fell short, to find where it was inaccurate, to look up the citations of where it found that source material and to deconstruct it so that we're doing that essential work of bringing a human perspective to it while at the same time teaching critical technological literacy, which will be important for that trust, right? We know that people tend to put over-reliance in AI systems. So how do we teach people to take a critical eye toward it? How do we teach new workers to use it to, again, augment and supercharge their capabilities without it replacing their ability to think critically and to add that layer of context on top of what the generative AI is delivering. So I, I, I think that there are ways to do it in thoughtful and responsible ways to create new approaches to it. And I'm certain that telling people not to use it 
is not going to work. Let me ask another ethical question for those of us. Um, I went to law school. I was, you know, went to went to college, and uh, you know, we were taught uh, do not plagiarize. So plagiarism ethically is is bad. Now, um, and you know, I spent several decades in that mind frame. Now, what's happening is um, you could. Let's say if I have a, have a day of work, I could um, come up with all the ideas myself. Um, and at the end of the day, go to my boss, like, here is one great paragraph. Like, this is a great paragraph. And my boss, of course, is saying, no, actually, you know, I gave you a whole six hours to get this done. Um, but then ethically, I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I need this to come from myself. Where, where do you see um, or how have you seen people work through that ethical framework? So that they are, they kind of um, leave their different prototypes of what is good and bad to um, take on these new tools, which, you know, at this, at this place, some people see them as murky, other people, other people like, I have no problem with that. So I was just wondering how you, how you would uh, instruct people who are dealing with the, their own ethical dilemmas as these new technologies come in. And I'm sure you haven't heard that question before. Yeah. Uh, I'm. Again, I think this will change. Okay. So I remember when, you know, professors and teachers would not allow students to cite Wikipedia as a source. And that has changed. Wikipedia has become, you know, a go-to source of knowledge because of the robust community deliberation that happens over the content that's there in many ways, it's judged to be more accurate than the Encyclopedia Britannica or other resources that were known to, known, I say it with air quotes around it, you um, be, you know, accurate and vetted and created by experts and specialists. So I think this will shift. I think that what we are likely to see is a world in which, um, there is an expectation of efficiency, but at the same time, there's no ethical question here, really, right? The, that goes away. Just in the same way, I wouldn't expect you to, uh, you know, generate a graph of sales over the last quarter by hand. I would expect you to input that data into an Excel spreadsheet and tell it to create the chart, right? So I wouldn't expect you necessarily to, over time, create that deliverable without the use of AI. Rather, I'd expect you to use AI to some extent and deliver that thing that I'm that I am expecting you to deliver. So, uh, it might be an ethical question today, but I'm not sure it will last as an ethical question. Very last question I have is, what are what and you know what you could share. What are some of the ethical issues that you're currently looking at uh, in as your role as the architect? Um, which just kind of, I would just like as a, an outsider view inside as to things that you are, you know, that, that Salesforce is battling or that you're battling every day. Absolutely. So there are, I would say, four or five risk vectors when it comes to AI broadly and generative AI particularly. The first is accuracy. How do we deliver results that are 
truthful, that are accurate, that do not contain what have become known as hallucinations, which frankly is an anthropomorphization that I don't like because I don't think that AI can hallucinate. I think AI just delivers factual errors. Uh, but, right? But delivering those accurate results and or inaccurate results is an ethical issue at the core of it. The second risk vector is around bias and toxicity. We know that the training data that is underlying these systems is fundamentally biased. If you scrape the internet, you're going to come across a lot of garbage content, a lot of spurious correlations, a lot of really unfortunate nether regions of the web that are still being ingested into these systems. And so ensuring that they don't perpetuate those biases, as well as ensuring that they limit outputs that can be harassing, bullying, um, articulate, you know, violence, all these kinds of toxic and harmful outputs is risk vector number two. The third is around privacy and security. Like we already discussed to some extent, uh, people want to have control over the data. They have expectations for how those data will be treated. Um, they expect, you know, um, that they have security in the use of these systems. So if I'm using a chat bot, I don't expect that it will share your phone number, Mitch. You know, that's that's your data. And I shouldn't be able to ask a chat bot, tell me Mitch Simon's phone number and have it share that back at me, right? So how do we protect people's personally identifiable information and sensitive information? Fourth vector is sustainability. So the computational power that is required to create these systems is massive. And as a result, the carbon emissions that goes along with that is also massive. So minimizing the environmental harm of training and developing these systems is another risk vector that we're also considering. And then lastly, what we already talked about, which is societal disruption. So how do we mitigate the potential risks today and down the road in things like jobs and workforce and education and all those other things? I don't believe we're in a moment of existential crisis around this. I don't think the AI is going to turn us all into paper clips uh, anytime soon. But I do think that we have to contend with the disruption that we are facing. So with those risks in mind, we have a set of guidelines and guidance for how to approach the development of these technologies so that they are accurate, safe, honest, empowering, and inclusive and sustainable. Um, and so that's the work that I am engaged in because know those risks and we have to make sure that we maximize the benefits of these technologies and minimize those risks. Well, this has been a beautiful conversation. I feel, um, feel more, uh, more, I feel safer now that I know that the people like you are actually, you know, uh, in very, um, influential companies with, um, where the company really does care about its ethical footprint. <clears throat> I could just see, uh, in a few years, the, the CEO would be the chief ethical officer. Actually, the CEO should be the chief ethical officer 
um, but certainly you can support that as well. If people want to um, uh, learn more about you and find out about you and your uh, role at um, at Salesforce, um, how would they find you? Sure. So, you know, obviously go to salesforce.com. There's like of information on our website actually about the Office of Ethical and Human Use, our trusted AI commitments, the various ways we're approaching these technologies on our blog and newsroom and all sorts of things like that. If you're looking for me personally, you can find me on LinkedIn or you can find me on Twitter. I'm Y Schlesinger on Twitter. Now we can talk about whether I should be using Twitter at this point, but I'm using Twitter still. So okay, we're not, well, this is an ethical conversation. I know. That's right. So you can find me there. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to chat about these issues or any other related to AI anytime. I do appreciate. I know that I, you know, I just reached out to you because we had a, we had a common friend and you were, um, you know, more than generous to uh, join the show. And I'm sure if you go online and search for Yoav Schlesinger, there's probably not too many. Is that correct? I don't know of another. So yeah, I think you will probably find me if you, if you go on. We're going to find you. Great. Well, this has been, this has just been a thrill, a great, um, it's a Friday now. So a great end of the week for us all. Um, if you've loved this uh, episode, please uh, go and sh go ahead and share this episode with your friends, your colleagues, your family. And we'll see you next time on the next episode of Team Anywhere. Before we sign off for today, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your support helps us grow. And by subscribing, you'll be the first to know when our exciting next episode is available. 